Hello, my name is Nathan Boyette. I'm the Assistant Pastor of Outreach and Mission here at EP Annapolis, and we're so happy that you are here this morning, and we are going to be continuing our worship uh, sermon series in Mark uh, this week with Mark 9, 2 through 29. So take out a Bible and turn there, but we're going to be doing something a little different this week. We're not going to be reading the whole passage at the beginning of the sermon. We're actually going to be reading it throughout the entire sermon. This passage, Mark 9, occurs six days after the events of last week's sermon when Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, and he explained that he must die and be raised again. Jesus at that time had called his disciples to a life of self-denial, which would paradoxically gain them the world. And this would have been a very confusing and uh, fear-inducing experience for the disciples, since they had expectations about the Messiah that was not uh, one of him dying. But we're going to dig into that in a moment, so let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it has been given to us for our good and that it speaks to us throughout all age, ages and times and places and experiences. And you have something to teach us today through your word, and we pray that you would do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't have many memories as a child, and what I do have are almost snapshots. I remember collecting caterpillars with my brother and sisters in a, a bucket on a hot summer day. I remember my father carrying me on his back from spot to spot when I had hurt my leg, but I wanted to be close to the family out in the yard. I remember when I cut my head in a tree, building a tree house with my older brother and running through the forest until I got to my mom when she took me to the hospital and got stitches. But one vivid memory that's etched into my mind is that of a conversation I had with my parents late at night. I was probably five or six years old, and one evening late, uh, when they were already in bed, I had gone to my parents' uh, room saying I was scared, terrified, in fact. Something I had watched on TV or maybe a story I had heard that day made me realize that my parents, myself, and others were all going to die. And I was terrified. I was scared. The thought of death was rolling around in my mind the whole evening, and I couldn't fall asleep. The context of our passage today is not unlike that late-night experience that I had. Earlier in Mark 8, Jesus had let the disciples know that he was going to his death. In 831, we read that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and be killed, and after three days rise again. This caused the disciples to be confused, scared, doubtful because of Jesus' words. They had expectations and hopes for him as a Messiah. Death and defeat were not included. We see a mixture of confusion and doubt throughout the whole Mark chapter 9. The disciples are overcome with fear when they see Jesus transfigured in verse 6. As they leave the mountain of transfiguration, they're questioning Jesus in confusion and doubt because his words have caused them to fear what if he's really the Messiah or not. And finally, in the last part of our passage, we see a father in anguish over his son's sickness, crying out in doubt and fear because he doesn't believe that Jesus can do anything to help. But today in our passage, we see the answer to the question of why did Jesus have to come? And that question answers our fears and doubts. We will see that Jesus came as the Son of God to call us back into genuine relationship with the Father. Again, we see that Jesus came as the Son of God to call us back into a genuine relationship with the Father. And that genuine relationship is a relationship of discipleship. Our, our passage is the Christological high point of the Gospel of Mark. Christology is the study of the person and work of Jesus. In the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, 
we see the person of Christ and his work beautifully displayed. James Edwards, writing on this passage, says, Christology leads to discipleship, and discipleship flows from Christology. The disciples saw who Jesus is. We see who Jesus is. And then that reality of who he is calls us out of fear, doubt, and confusion and into a trusting, genuine relationship of discipleship. So we're going to explore that in this passage today through three main points. First, we're going to see that Jesus is the Son of God and that we're called to listen to him. Second, we're going to see that Jesus is the suffering servant and we're called to follow his example into suffering. And third, we're going to see that Jesus is the Savior from sickness, sin, and death. And we're called to have faith in him and pray to him. So let's first look at our our first main point of Jesus is the Son of God. We haven't read the passage yet, so read along with me in Mark 9, 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. In this passage, we see an amazing event where Jesus' true being, his true identity, is revealed fully to the disciples. And Jesus' disciples, uh, at that time, were expecting a triumphant Messiah who would deliver Israel and restore them to their rightful place as a powerful kingdom. But Jesus had said earlier that he was going to suffer and die. What kind of Messiah is that? That's not what they were expecting at all. Six days later, just a short time after that, he's with three of his disciples on a mountain and his divine eternal glory is revealed to them. This this account of the transfiguration is filled with Old Testament imagery. Most notably, we see two figures, Elijah and Moses, two key Old Testament people. Elijah was a chief prophet and Moses was the one through whom God had given Israel the law. Both were saviors of Israel at different points in their history. Elijah saved Israel from the idolatry of Baal in 1 Kings, and Moses saved Israel from slavery in Egypt. The main idea that Mark is communicating here is that the witness and ministry of both Elijah, representing the prophets, and Moses, representing the law, was all along pointing to Jesus and is finally here fulfilled in Jesus. The six days mentioned in verse 2 reminds us of the six days that Moses spent on Mount Sinai with God at the giving of the Ten Commandments. Jesus and his disciples go up to a high mountain. Both Moses and Elijah had an experience of God's glory on a mountain. Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus and Elijah at Mount Horeb in 1 Kings 19. Finally, a final uh, Old Testament image. We see a cloud that overshadows them. This word for cloud used here is rarely used in the Bible. And the only other times it's used is describing the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle and filling Solomon's temple. The glory of the Lord here is present again as Jesus, the final dwelling of God among men, is revealed to his disciples as the Son of God. Jesus is described as being transfigured before them. The word only occurs in the Bible when something is radically transformed. It's, talk, it's talked about in, by Paul when we are radically transformed from death to life. 
And that is what occurs here. We read that Jesus' clothes become radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And that the disciples are terrified by his very presence at that point. Jesus is not transformed from one thing into something else entirely different, though. He, he, this is who he really is. This is his eternal being that he has always existed as. And the disciples are finally seeing it. The three disciples is naturally one of confusion and fear. In verse, Peter, P, in verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Scholars aren't exactly clear what Peter was talking about here, but it's very clear from verse 6 that Peter was just simply at a loss for words because he was so afraid. And finally, in verse 7, we see that as the divine cloud overshadows them, God the Father from heaven states, this is my beloved son, listen to him. In this passage, we see Jesus' true eternal nature finally revealed to the disciples. And as his true nature, his true person is revealed, they are commanded by God the Father from heaven to listen. And in the Bible, uh, inevitably, when somebody is called to listen to God, they're also called to obey. And so the implicit command here is to listen and obey Jesus. Going back to my introduction, in that vivid memory of a late night scare of death, I went to my parents, and they comforted me. They encouraged me. They told me biblical truths of our loving Heavenly Father. His care for each one of us is as his creations, about how he would provided Jesus as a Savior from sin and death, so that regardless of death's existence, I did not need to be afraid. You see, I had a personal relationship with my parents. I trusted them. I knew them. And through them, I was beginning to know who God was. And so I listened to them. I went back to bed. I was no longer scared. I slept peacefully. See, the disciples, they had a personal relationship with Jesus, but they were being progressively revealed who he was. And so they're finding out his identity and his true being. They see who he is here, the son of God, and they're commanded to listen to him. Living on the other side of the resurrection, we now more fully see who Jesus is. And so how much more should we listen and obey him? Where does Jesus speak to us now? He speaks to us in his word. He speaks to us as we pray. Let us listen to him. The son of God, the eternal creator of the universe, desires and longs to have an intimate, personal discipleship relationship with each one of us. Are we seeking that out? Is that an overarching direction of our life? If we are not listening to our Lord through his word, then other mediums will fill that void. We were created to be people who listen and obey media, news and entertainment, music, movies. These are the things that tell the stories of our culture. These are the things that are filling the void if we do not spend time in God's word listening to him. These things are informing and shaping us. Let us be instead people that are formed and shaped by God's word as we listen to him. Inevitably, in the coming months, we are going to have a lot more time at home than we did before. We are not going to be able to go out and go wherever we want because of the coronavirus. This is an opportunity God has given us to press in and reorient our time, reorient our priorities on him. We could neglect this opportunity and spend countless hours in entertainment, movies, TV, video games, and other avenues. But God has given us this opportunity for our own good to focus on the priority, on him, on listening to his word. So let us as individuals and families spend time with him, seek him in his word, and listen to him. 
In our second point, Jesus as the suffering servant, we see that after Jesus' divine glory was revealed to the disciples, they're heading back down the mountain. Let's read in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. A danger for the disciples and a danger for Mark's original readers was that they would have a triumphant view of the Messiah. The first century Jews viewed that the Messiah was a savior who would su not suffer and die, a savior who would save them from defeat, save them from occupation by the Roman Empire. They were expecting a political, military deliverance from the Roman Empire, not a Messiah who would suffer and die. So earlier in Mark 8, 31, and then again here in not verse 9 of our passage, Jesus must remind them that the Messiah, the Christ, came to suffer and die and eventually be raised from the dead. He does not want to keep them to keep having this expectation of deliverance in the here and now in this world. So we read in verse 10 that they question, they're wondering about this. And in verse 11, they ask a specific question of Jesus. They ask, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? For us, that might seem like a weird question. What are they talking about Elijah for now? Of course, they did just see Elijah, but as many commentators note, uh, their question almost seems to be a rebuttal of the idea of a suffering Messiah. See, the Old Testament talks about Elijah coming back before the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was when the Lord would judge the wicked and restore the righteous. And Malachi 4 speaks about Elijah coming before the Lord returns when the Lord will restore all things. And so there was a common understanding, a common hope among religious teachers that one day Elijah would come back and then God would restore things to his original good creation. So Jesus is talking about this, and he tells them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But then he goes to another Old Testament figure, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. In verse 12, we read Jesus say, it is written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Many people see in this uh, the first of many references throughout Mark to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, we see one who is the servant of the Lord, but suffers and is rejected by men so as to save many people. And Jesus was referencing this to his disciples. He's saying, you have this hope that Elijah will come and then the Lord will restore all things. But in the Old Testament, there's also this teaching that the Messiah will come and suffer in order to restore all things. And Jesus goes even further in verse 13 and tells them that Elijah has already come and suffered and died. And he's here referring to John the Baptist, who suffered and died at the hands of Herod and prepared the way for our Lord Jesus. You see, God's world is broken due to sin, but God is on the move, restoring and setting it right. The consequences of sin is brokenness, sin, death. In order for, to set that right, that suffering, death, and brokenness has to be entered into, first and ultimately by God in the person of Jesus Christ but then also by his followers, by us. Jesus is our suffering servant, and he suffered to restore all things to God's original good creation. And as we follow him as disciples, we also will suffer. Peter himself, the source of much of the material in the Gospel of Mark, writes in 1 Peter 1 
about how his readers need to be encouraged to rejoice in life's trials and sufferings because God is using it to refine them and make them into the people that he intends them to be. And in Colossians 1.24, Paul, an apostle who suffered greatly to spread the gospel all around the Greek-speaking world, writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul is saying that the gospel of salvation has been secured by Jesus' death and resurrection. But as I go out and I spread the gospel to all peoples, the reality is that I also am suffering persecution, beatings, homelessness, trials, as I spread the gospel to others. So that's the reality. Jesus is the suffering servant who through his suffering and death and resurrection has brought life and salvation to many. And as his disciples, we are called to follow his example and enter into suffering. An amazing natural migration occurs every year in the Northwest Pacific. Every year, mature adult salmon make a long journey from out in the Pacific Ocean up, traveling against the current, upstream to the area where they were born. Many salmon uncannily return to the exact part of the river where they were born and their life started. A part of nature is an instinctual drive in animals, fish, and insects to reproduce, to make more of their kind. And for the salmon, this is not an easy process. They have to go from the Pacific Ocean up into the rivers, far into Washington State and Canada. They go upstream, they flip their bodies, and they are fighting against the downriver flowing current. And it's not easy. In the rivers where they were both born and spawn, there's no food for mature adult salmon to eat. And so they no longer have the strength and the food to replenish their strength to keep, to go back down out into the Pacific Ocean. So once they reach their spawning grounds and they give birth to offspring, they inevitably die. They give their lives that their offspring might have life. And that is what Jesus has done for us. He suffered and died that we, the children of God, might have life. We as modern Americans do not like to suffer. We barely like inconvenience. But the amazing reality is that our good, good Heavenly Father uses even suffering and trials for our good, to refine us and make us who we are meant to be. Are we willing to suffer? We need to live in light of eternity rather than the present. If all our lives are is this present time, if all our lives are the house that we can buy, the possessions we can accumulate, then suffering makes no sense. But if we're living for eternity, an eternal relationship with God, an eternal relationship with other people, then our suffering here is meaningful if we're going to be in a place where no suffering will ever exist. And that's the hope and the reality that we as Christians have. What are examples of suffering in our modern experience? Living in the United States, we might not suffer from persecution, like our brothers and sisters in the Middle East or China or India. So what does suffering look like for us? One area is a willingness to give up our time, our finances, and even our rights so that other people might hear the message of Jesus Christ so that other people might know God's love. Are we willing to take our time during the week, our very money that we have, to help people to know God's love? I've been to a number of funerals over the past couple of months, and, and each one I was struck by the person's strong faith in the midst of suffering and dying. As I heard their loved ones tell stories of how in their final days, or even over the course of months in sickness, 
they had a joyful hope in the midst of their suffering. They had hope in the Lord, and even their suffering and dying did not overwhelm them. One way we suffer in this life is from the effects of sin, death, brokenness, family conflict, conflict with neighbors or coworkers. Are we willing to suffer those with hope in our eternal home? Do we suffer as those without hope or as those with hope? The way we walk through suffering is a key witness to those around us. So as we move to our third and final point, we see that Jesus is the Savior from sickness and death and sin. Read with me in Mark 9, 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire, into water, to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying it to you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In this longer passage, we see a very familiar scene, if you've been reading through Mark, a familiar scene of someone suffering, coming to Jesus for healing, to be made well. However, in this instance, Jesus is absent. He's up on the mountain being transfigured before James, Peter, and John. And so the disciples try to heal this boy, this boy, but are unable. They can't do anything. And we just read through the account, so we have seen that Jesus was more than able to heal the son and restore him to his father. Anyone who's been reading through Mark knows that Jesus is more than able to heal anybody of their sicknesses, their disease, or the unclean spirits that trouble them. We should not be surprised by his ability that he is the savior from sickness, suffering, and death. Jesus is the savior there are extra lessons to learn about this passage, though, from disip- about discipleship. We see in Jesus' responses to the Father and also his teaching of his disciples some lessons about what it means to be a disciple in this world. First, a lesson about faith. In verse 19, we see Jesus respond to the disciples' inability to cast out the demon with the exclamation, O faithless generation! Jesus does not mean that they are untrustworthy, but rather he means that they lack faith. They lack it. They have no faith. Not just the disciples, but the scribes that are present, the larger watching crowd, and even the father himself, the father of this young boy, lacked faith. 
the father describes the illness impacting the boy. And then he pleads, but if you can do anything. And Jesus exclaims, if you can, and lets him know that everything is possible for one who believes. And so the father naturally cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. And this is not just the need of the father that is present there. This is the need of every person in that crowd and of us individually. We need help with our unbelief. The father, the disciples, the angry scribes, everybody present needs to believe. Second, we have a lesson on prayer. In verse 28 to 29, after Jesus heals the deaf and mute son, we see an interesting question by the disciples. They wonder, why could we not cast it out? It's not because Jesus had not given them the ability. You see, earlier in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus had given them authority to cast out unclean spirits. But Jesus responds in verse 29, saying, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, Jesus is not saying that there are different kinds of demons with varying levels of difficulty uh, of being cast out. The Bible nowhere else teaches that, and so that's not what's going on here. Rather, Jesus is emphasizing that there was a key lacking component in the disciples' attempt to cast out the demon. They did not pray. They tried to do God's work without relying on God. They tried to do God's work without relying on God. A common thread in Mark is the inadequacy of the disciples to serve and do ministry without Jesus. The important lesson for us here is that we desperately need both faith and prayer. Writing on in this passage, James Edwards notes, service in fellowship with Christ is characterized by constant awareness of the inadequacy of the servant, constant awareness of the inadequacy. This inadequacy should drive the disciples to prayer, which is God's gift to them and another form of fellowship with Jesus as their Lord. So we see in this interaction between the Father and the Son, between Jesus and the Father, Jesus and the disciples, that we are called to a life of discipleship, of faith and prayer. George Mueller was a German Christian who was a pastor and orphanage director in Bristol, England for almost 60 years. By God's grace, Mueller had a powerful and effective ministry. He not only served faithfully as a pastor and preacher for decades, but in the course of his long life, he cared for 10,000 orphans and established 117 Christian schools that served 120,000 people for free. The unique aspect of his ministry that helps illustrate our lessons on discipleship today is his great faith and prayer. You see, Mueller had these far-reaching large ministries to orphans and youth, but he never requested money or resources to support his work. He trusted the Lord and brought his needs to the Lord in prayer. He would often have needs for the orphans, food, clothes, heat in winter, that he would pray to the Lord about, bringing them to the Father, and by the end of the day, those prayers would be answered. Sometimes the needs were met mere hours before the needs became acute. Food for meals that would have caused the orphans to go hungry, heating in the dead cold of winter that was provided. Mueller constantly, daily prayed to the Lord about these needs. In his autobiography, Mueller writes, prayer and faith, the universal remedies against every want and every difficulty. In the nourishment of prayer and faith, God's holy word helped me over all the difficulties. Let me read that again because it encapsulates the lesson for us today from this passage. Prayer and faith, the universal remedies against every want and every difficulty. In the nourishment of prayer and faith, God's holy word helped me over all the difficulties. 
As we reflect on this quote from George Mueller, we see that it encapsulates the message of this sermon in Mark 9, a life of discipleship, prayer and faith, listening to God through his word, and suffering, difficulties. These were all present in Mueller's life. The suffering and difficulties did not become less because he was a Christian, but he overcame them as he was fed by God's word and as he relied on the Lord through prayer and faith. In this life of discipleship, we will stumble and we will fall and we will fail and we will sin. But the healing balm to our failure and stumbling is not that we pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's in the other side of the message of Mark 9. It's that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our savior. Jesus is the suffering servant who went to the cross and died for us that we might have life. He is the son of God who is Lord and has saved us from sickness, sin, and death. And if we have faith, if we trust in him, then we are united with him and have his identity. That salvation is already ours. It is a reality if we have trust in Jesus Christ. He now calls us into a life of discipleship, not because we need to earn our place with him. He's already earned it for us. Rather, he calls us into a life of discipleship because that is a genuine relationship with the Father, the one that we were originally created for. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much that you have given it to us and blessed us so that we might know you better. Please help us in the midst of uncertainty, fear, and anxiety to trust in you as our God, to trust in you as our Savior, and to live a life of discipleship, a genuine relationship with you. As we have faith and trust, as we pray to you, as we seek nourishment, food through your word, and as we go through sufferings and difficulties, trusting in you, Lord God, give us strength. Thank you so much that we don't need to earn our place with you, but it has already been given, and that you then call us into a life following you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.